0: This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by... Arby's. We have the meat. So we're going to be eating roast beef sandwiches here, but there's big news out of Arby's coming October 21st. Now, you got to go to New-, New Zealand for this, I might add. They're going to have the venison sandwich. It's back. And in Colorado, the elk sandwich.
1: Wow. Career switch right now. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, am, how do you, how do you I'm, supply I'm, that? Yeah, I'm... Gonna take my gun, head out into. Is, Z- I mean, is it is it
2: farm raised elk, or do they send their purchasing guys out in a jeep with shotguns just to drive through the Serengeti,
1: blowing down elk? So how do you how do you source that? I personally kind of, would hope the latter. You know, I <laughs> like participate, but um, you know, interestingly, Guns, Germs, and Steel, great book, just check it out. Kind of it goes through the the fate of human societies, It traces back everything to the Fertile Crescent. Um, Franklin, that is a cry for help. <laughs> do you need a hug? Do, no, no, do you no. You need to spend your time reading No, that? no, no. So, so, okay. so the, reason, the reason that you know cattle became the predominant uh, food source, meat source, is because they don't fight. So deer, male deer, if they're in a confined area together, they will fight each other. Kind of like Congressional Democrats. Yes, there you go. Exactly. No fight. Yeah. Although we'd like to round them up like cattle, we can't because <laughs> they will go after one another. Um, So that that is why cattle kind of went out in terms of the primary foods. Hey, I
0: have an idea. Let's do the show.
3: Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again.
0: From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, what will California's governor do with a wage-shaming bill sitting on his desk, and how could his decision impact states and employers around the country? We'll get legal analysis about the TIP credit rule, and where it's heading in the courts from one of the top law firms in the nation. And as always, the legislative scorecard, the top items affecting business operators that happened this week. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Kelly, with aligned Public Strategies Partners, Joe Kefauver to my right, Franklin Coley sitting across the table. And our guy in the bubble, Joe Renzel, is in Washington, DC. Now I suspect we have a lot of new listeners downloading the pod this week. Hello, New York and Atlanta. And we'll get to the interview you're waiting for in just a minute. But first, a couple of other items. In California, a bill awaits action by the governor that would mandate companies with more than 500 employees to submit employee wage data broken down by gender every two years. Franklin, what is the significance of this bill?
1: And before we freak everyone out too much, This is one of a number of labor employment policy bills that have landed in the governor's desk. He has signed most of the other ones, and this one is still sitting there, which indicates that he is giving a long, hard thought as to whether or not to sign this into law. That being said, this is very similar to the federal EO1 form that employers have been so worried about. The only difference, it appears, is that there is very intentionally, it is referred to as a wage-shaming bill, very intentionally, there's this public database um, that is set up for all employers to have out there in the public domain exactly what the, the pay breakdown is by gender. Um, you know, this is probably going to put a lot of employers in a very, very tough position to explain if there are differences by gender um, if the governor decides to sign this.
2: Two, two things I would say about Jerry Brown in particular, you know, his M.O. every year is he gets a pile of... Of pro-labor bills that fly out of the California legislature to end up on his desk and Jerry Brown is a progressive right and, and but he's not a stereotypical progressive he's, a, he's, he's got a lot of pragmatic in him and he basically says to the labor community all right you're gonna get some you're not gonna get others pick, pick and choose your priorities right and so he signed a couple of other bills which would say maybe maybe he wouldn't sign this um, second part is for the operators you know, Jerry Brown's wife was a longtime senior executive at The Gap, right? So he knows intuitively the retail, restaurant, entry-level business model. He knows how it works. So, you know, he's not a reflexive, just pro-labor guy. He, He looks, you know, really at these issues. And so it'd be interesting to see what he does with it. At the end of the day, you know, and maybe I have egg on my face. I, I still kind of think he signs it because when it comes to gender equality and these type of things, he's always always been a big cause for him, more so than union dues and collective bargaining and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, this this could be this could be a, a big challenge for operators. Joe
0: Renzel, you don't think he'll sign
2: it?
4: I have my doubts. I think he's got, uh, as Franklin said earlier, a couple other bills on his desk, most notably one dealing with pay equity that was in terms of that historical salary question that, that we've seen in some other states, so banning employers from doing that. That might check the kind of pay gender box for him. Uh, it's un, it's unclear, though. I think the other challenge, if it does get signed, is that there's a lot of operational um, challenges within the language, so they, they haven't really specified how to the process for calculating the wage the period of time for the data calculation um, you know a lot of other kind of question marks that the business community has raised so you know we'll we'll see Uh, he's got a couple days here left uh, to go uh, in terms of signing or vetoing the legislation Um, so we'll see how it goes but I I think if I had to if I had to guess right now I'd, I'd say he leaves this one on the side
1: and so regardless of whether or not he signs it I think the challenge for employers moving forward is now this is, you know, the marker is put down in this issue. This is a new, you know, potentially kind of model policy that could pop up in other states and other jurisdictions around the country, and and that's problematic. I,
2: I would push back. If he doesn't sign it and it doesn't go into law, you're not going to see other states do it. But if he does sign it, then you might see the Comos in New York and some other people jump on why is that? Because automatically those pe-
0: those companies will be exposed. The numbers will be out there, and, and other states will they'll kind of have they to. just do not want to at- go
2: through the political fight of it. If if, if it wasn't progressive enough, advocates for California will pick it up. Yeah, it's not going to be progressive enough for New York. I mean, there's not going to go down that road. But if but if, if it gets into law, then to Franklin's point, the advocates will carry that ball.
1: I think there's right. There there may there may be one or two the the Washingtons or the or the Oregon's, but but uh, I generally they need speaking, California yeah. usually to go first. In the state. Yeah.
0: Joe Kefauver, you had a great line this morning, blue cities really singing the blues. We've got three different places, Cook County, Illinois, uh, Albuquerque, cue the music, and Washington, D.C. What happened in those places that suggests that some of these blue cities are saying, hold on a second, on some of these uh,
2: regulations that are awfully progressive? Yeah, we've been seeing this for a number of weeks and months, um, most of the summer, where we have this you know social idealism on a collision course with economic reality and it looks like the progressive agenda is taking the brunt of the damage from these collisions and here just this week in three you know reliably blue jurisdictions albuquerque chicago and washington dc you know significant pieces of the left to center agenda got pushed back so let's get to them cook county sugar tax it's gone
1: it's gone and this has been a fiasco from day one and i will say this you know and the sugar soda tax however you want to characterize it i think it's pop tax in chicago right pop soda um (laughs) out in the hardy midwest they still use the term pop so the previous battlegrounds in this issue were flagstaff berkeley california you know not exactly kind of thriving metropolises i mean cook county you know chicago surrounding area (laughs) That, this was a big deal. This was going to be a big win for advocates for sugar and soda taxes. To have this take, it's got to hurt. It has to hurt a lot. Michael Bloomberg spent a lot of money in Cook County in Chicago to to get this in place, and it's it's also the way they lost. It is just. It's probably going to take down the uh, the board chairman, the county executive, the equivalent of the mayor. Um, you know, it, it is, there's a lot of nasty political fallout, including a $200 million budget hole now that they have no idea how they're going to fill.
2: And, and and the Bloomberg effort lost down the road from Albuquerque and Santa Fe earlier this year where the voters rejected right. it. So it's, they're they're just, they're having a tough time. Real
0: quickly, the update in Albuquerque that we first mentioned last week is what?
1: It was a paid leave mandate. Now they probably flew a little too close to the sun and this reached a little too far. I think it was, Renzel, it was five days for smaller employers and seven days for larger employers. Is that right? Yeah, I think that was right. And it was a ballot initiative that failed
4: pretty closely. I think it was by 1%. So they might be revisiting it, but I think the point is, you know, you'd think you'd have that base support, especially when you go to the ballot box. And even even in those stages, folks are kind of saying, wait a minute, you know, what's the economic impact of some of these provisions. Which and is it,
2: precisely what's happening in Washington, D.C. with their paid leave. And now, you know, Washington, D.C. passed this landmark, you know, new standard of family and parental leave, you know, earlier this year, last year. And, oh, it's costing more than they thought, you know, shocking as that may be. And so now they're having to revisit that. So, I mean, the, the, the theme is all in all, it was a pretty bad week in some pretty friendly jurisdictions for the left to center agenda. And I think operators have an opportunity to talk about that. And, the, you know, the, 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 the middle of the conversation is now finally in our sandbox. And we can talk about the economic realities that these things have on job creation, on workforce development, on upward mobility, on building careers. The, the game has come to us. Joe Renzel, if you
0: had to sing about this issue, what do you think the lyrics would be?
4: I think you've got something on recording that you can go back to.
1: <laughs> Okay, we will do that, thank you.
4: (laughs) Jilly's baby back ribs.
1: Thank you for that suggestion, Joseph. You guys are just
4: jealous of my uh, pristine voice there, I know. My God, it has got the voice of an
1: angel. It's breathtaking.
0: As our regular listeners know, we get into a lot of legal issues that sometimes we have to kind of pump the brakes a little bit and say we're not lawyers. We need to kind of phone a friend
1: here. Absolutely, we just get back to the uh, Monday morning Quarterbacking from from the armchair, right. from definitive answers to anything. Is any it like calling a lifeline? What
2: was that show where you can it call it a lifeline? Or Regis? It? Yeah, Regis.
0: Yeah, Regis. Well, we could we could have called Dewey Cheatham and Howe, but uh, they're closed on Friday. so we <laughs> so we went legit, as uh, as Franklin would say, and we contacted Jackson Lewis. Jeffrey Brecker is a principal and uh, at the esteemed law firm. In fact, he heads up the Wage and Hour Group at Jackson Lewis. Jeff, the ruling from the Ninth Circuit, which you have written extensively about over the 80-20 regulation, the tip credit rule, uh, that ruling was considered good news for employers, but why should operators continue to pay close attention to this?
3: So, uh, it, was, it was good news for employers because it was the uh, first case uh, at the circuit court level to um, expressly reject the Department of Labor's uh, 20% rule, which your listeners may know, um, essentially requires that employers segregate the duties of servers or tipped employees into like three buckets. So you have duties that are directly involved in generating tips, like waiting on a customer, delivering food, that's the first bucket. You have your second bucket, which are related duties, so wiping down a table, or filling up uh, condiments, or rolling uh, silverware, things like that, that may not directly generate a tip, but are related to it. And then you have your third bucket, according to the DOL, of unrelated duties, like cleaning a bathroom, or mopping the floors, or taking out the garbage. That's how the DOL has framed tipping, and basically has said that, for you can pay that tip credit lower wage. For the second bucket, you can also take a tip credit, but the amount of time spent on those related duties can't exceed 20% according to the DOL, and that's how we get the name 20% rule or 80-20. And if it does, then you can't take a tip credit for any time in excess of that. And then this third bucket, this unrelated duties, You can't take a tip credit for any of it. So that's how the DOL has sort of framed it, and the Ninth Circuit expressly rejected that whole analysis and basically said that that interpretation by the DOL doesn't fit with the statute and the regulations. And what you really should be looking at is, is the person engaged in one job or two jobs? If it's one job, then they can be paid the tip credit rate for that entire job and you don't have to go through minute by minute segregating the duties with a stopwatch you know is this a related duty a tip duty or an unrelated duty so it's very you know significant that it's the first court that's rejected that and hopefully um will lead to other courts rejecting it and maybe the DOL itself um Rejecting
1: it. So, so, Jeff, what does that mean for employers today in the Ninth Circuit or really anywhere, I guess, for that matter? And then what does that potentially mean for them tomorrow? How does this process kind of play out over time? Yeah, so
3: the case is interesting in that, um, although it was, it was decided in September and uh, by a three judge panel, it was a 2 1 decision, and interestingly, uh, the two judges. Uh, judges that were appointed by uh, republican presidents voted in favor of um rejecting the rule and the one democrat uh voted the other way uh, but the, the plaintiffs in, in those cases have filed a what's called a petition for en banc ruling which basically says to the uh, entire ninth circuit there's like 30 judges in the ninth circuit they want the entire ninth circuit to rehear the case Saying that the panel, the three judges who decided it, made a mistake, and that the entire court should hear it, and they just filed that petition recently, and, and the opposition to that petition is actually due this week, and the court will vote. The entire court, the 29 or so judges, will vote on whether to rehear that case. Um, and if they do rehear it, then there's a, a 11 judges that are randomly selected. Who will actually reconsider the entire case? Now it's pretty rare that uh, a request to rehear it is granted. There's only probably, I think the the last statistic I saw was about 15 to 25 cases per year um, are um, reviewed by the whole court because you can imagine that takes up a lot of time for a lot of judges. Right. Uh, but it's possible that the judge, could, that the court could rehear the whole thing and then maybe change its opinion um or you know adopt the the three judge panel um so it's not over yet and of course they could also appeal to the u.s supreme court uh, if they wanted um so it's certainly not over yet but for employers who are in the ninth circuit at the moment it is the law of the land uh, but as you know there are this rule is um has been interpreted by some other courts, including the 8th Circuit and, um, and and other district courts. So it depends on where you're operating at the
1: moment. So essentially, if, you're, if your operations are within a different circuit, you may be hold, held to a different standard right now today, this moment in time.
3: Yes. And then, of course, the DOL and the rules right now that are in place are, re, are really the Obama DOL interpretations. Right. So another interesting development that we, you know, should talk about is what the Trump administration might do to change things and how they can change things. But the, this Ninth Circuit case was argued basically at right around the time when you know the uh, the administration was changing, and um, it reflects really the Obama uh, view. And so the DOL would take the position: if you're not in the Ninth Circuit, that percent rule applies so if you're not in the ninth circuit you got to comply with these three buckets that i mentioned you got to segregate the hours into tip generating non-tip generating but related and then unrelated duties and then figure out how much time was spent
0: um in each so it's it's kind of a little bit of a mess at the moment jeff what's your read on what the trump administration's going to do
3: not contained in any law it's not in a statute for example it's not even in a regulation it's contained in the department of labor's field operations handbook which is like their internal manual but courts defer to that generally unless it's inconsistent with the, with the law or unreasonable in this case the ninth circuit held it wasn't consistent with the with the law um, so because it's an informal Interpretation or policy document, the Department of Labor, if it wanted to, could immediately change it. They could rescind it, they could replace it, um, and that would immediately change things on a going forward basis at minimum. Um, and they could also issue, if they wanted to make it a, have a little more teeth, uh, a formal uh, regulation. And one sort of interesting thing to note is that when um, uh, right before Obama uh, took office, the DOL had abandoned the 20% rule. They issued an opinion letter right at the tail end of um, the Bush administration, basically rescinding the 20% rule. But the letter had been signed but not mailed, so wow. they say. And then Obama, when they came in, they withdrew it. Wow. <laughs> And so Obama's DOL came in like the first. If you go on the DOL's website, for example, you'll see a list of opinion letters that were signed by the administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the Department of Labor right before Bush uh, left. But that because they had not been mailed, the DOL withdrew them all. And so it was um, you know if, if there was a couple more weeks, and they had gone in the mail. Maybe things have been would have been different. But as easy, as easily as the Obama administration it, you know, the change, the same thing could happen here, and, and the DOL could issue a new interpretation and, you know, dramatically assist in the um, clarification of what employers should do.
0: Our thanks to Jeff Brecker and Jackson Lewis for that great legal analysis. We did end up talking to Jeff for quite a while about a variety of legal matters, including a handful of cases that are going before the Supreme Court that are gonna affect employers. We want you to hear that portion of the interview as well, but for the sake of time, we're gonna save it for the next episode, so that'll be coming up next week. It's time for the legislative scorecard. These are the top items affecting business operators from around the country. Joe Kefauver, this is quite the broken record, but we're gonna do it again anyway. Montgomery County, Maryland, what is the latest from Crab your home cakes, turf? football,
2: minimum wage. Yes, <laughs> home sweet home, baby. Um, so a step forward this week, you know, we got a compromise legislation uh, working its way through the process. The compromise is largely around the enactment dates and how, how quickly this thing rolls into play for $15 and what businesses it applies to. So that compromise package uh, passed a uh, committee this week. So the process continues on. Detractors still think they have a chance to gather enough votes to kind of put it back to its original form before a final vote. So it's moving compromise went through a committee we'll see what happens but the ball is still moving in Gummy County the one in South Bend uh, Indiana is the interesting one for me um, they're moving forward with a minimum wage hike to 1010 10 an hour uh, targeted at businesses that receive tax incentives f- um, from the city to locate within the city limits of South Bend and so that wage would be 1010 10 an hour that is higher than Indiana's state minimum wage of 7.25, and Indiana has preemption. So does preemption apply in this case? Is this a backdoor way around preemption? If it potentially is because it's a little different, is that a potential avenue down the road for other minimum wage plus 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 types of bills to find a way around preemption? So we're going to watch South Bend, Indiana pretty closely.
0: And Franklin, there's a couple issues to get to on the wage
1: compliance front. What are they? Interestingly, there's a group of restaurants in California in the Bay Area that are being sued for instituting a no tipping policy and increasing their prices by 20% is the allegation. And essentially what the lawsuit states is that these restaurants banded together in an anti-competitive fashion and you know fixed prices. The more interesting piece is these restaurants have really been out on the front edge of this no tipping movement. You know, The reason that they said they're eliminating tips was to pair, uh, to pay fair wages for all employees. This is part of the same announcement that was made a couple years ago with Danny Meyer and um, other restaurants around the country. So it be interesting to see how this plays out. Switching over to the retail side, we've had a case that's popped up uh, Menards is being accused of not paying the right wages relative to breaks, training sessions. Large home improvement chain. Yeah, and so that that's going to play out through the courts. You know, also tied up in that is something else we've touched on in this podcast. I think in previous as well is this arbitration case, employer-employee agreements that include an arbitration clause that is going in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, Menards is asking that the judge sit on this case until that goes to the Supreme Court. We'll see how it all plays out. The bottom line, though, is a lot of retailers, tours convenience stores are facing increased scrutiny in this space. And, and we see new stories every day.
4: And Joe Renzel, why don't you take paid leave? Sure. And we touched on this earlier. Uh, California Governor Brown did sign a parental leave bill. That was one of the ones that he... Uh, did put into law. Uh, this goes after smaller businesses uh, outside of the purview of the Family Medical Leave Act at the federal level. So employers uh, with, with workers with between 20 and 49 workers, you got to grant them 12 weeks of unpaid leave uh, for the birth or adoption of a child. Uh, it does contain a unique uh, mediation program. Uh, That's mandatory before the workers could sue any employers for violation. So that was something that was important to the governor. He had vetoed a previous version of this legislation, but but signed off on this one with that stipulation. The other piece we're watching is in Austin, Texas. Uh, The city council passed a non-binding resolution. So that's basically telling the council that they need to go forward with uh, a potential citywide paid sick leave law. Uh, and stakeholders will benefit. Uh, will they'll debate that specific policy uh, around February two thousand eight. And
0: Franklin, what happened with pay equity
1: in Michigan? So, we, we've got two salary history updates. Um, in Michigan, the state Senate passed a bill that essentially bans municipalities from legislating on this area. So, you know, some municipalities want to. Ban questions around salary history, the state has said, nope, that's the purview of the state, um, or is in the process of, of passing legislation that would say that. California, um, we had a law signed, uh, a bill signed in law by the governor that prohibits businesses from asking questions about salary history. This is kind of related to the bill we talked about earlier that is sitting on the governor's desk. He hasn't signed yet. That is a wage-shaming bill. Um, so some more requirements in California.
0: Joe Renzel, we probably could have spent a whole show talking about healthcare, uh, and all the nuances playing out this week and what it actually means. Uh, but just kind of give us the bullet points about the developments late this week.
4: Yeah. So, uh, I'll give you the top line here. Trump signed an executive order that basically allows for more insurance options. It, It directs agencies to kind of do, uh, some work in the, in the allowance of, of, options on the insurance market that are outside of the purview that are outside the standards established under the ACA so it has potential to kind of water down what what benefits and programs are offered um, but at the same time nothing necessarily changed after that executive order he's directed agency action so we'll we'll watch that closely. The bigger deal uh, is that after signing that executive order they announced that, Uh, The administration would suspend the federal subsidies paid to insurance companies that participate in the ACA exchanges. Um, This is an effort that's designed to keep those premiums across the country lower. You know, if the federal government's subsidizing, you know, the insurance market to an extent, a big, you know, kind of issue that Republicans have talked about for a long time, um, and and the fact that he's going to suspend those subsidies, you know, combined with the executive order activity. You know is is a pretty substantial step in in towards dismantling the ACA. I think the problem from an operator's perspective is that you know these type these type of activities will cause a little bit of chaos in that market uh, and it could affect the prices of the plans that you do offer your employers today or your employees today rather. Um, and so that's something that you know operators should be paying attention to as as the market moves. Uh, in the coming weeks and months.
2: Yeah, I think I think for operators, it was the second one's the big one. The first one had a lot of, you know, photo op quality to it and, you know, signing this and that. That's a, to be determined how, whether that matters or
1: not, it's the second piece that operators need to focus on.
0: Before we go, we do want to update uh,
1: your... Whoa, whoa, Kelly, can we <laughs> rewind the tape, please? And go back to my comments where I stated that these You know, pet policies around parental leave or bereavement, you know, it was already in the law that they just had to expand the definition of loved one or family member to include pets, which I think it already does. Well, indeed, a court agreed with Mr. Coley. Um, not in the United States, mind you. Not in the United yeah. States, so it's not its not a strong precedent.
0: Um, Maybe a little context behind that line. Yeah. How far do
2: we have to go to find a court that agreed with Franklin? Italy,
1: apparently. Yeah, I mean, um, that is our answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Italian court held that uh, found that, yeah pets were included as family members for, you know, leave policies, um, and bereavement policies. So, it's just a matter of time before it gets to the states. It's I see it spinning around the globe right now. Companies need, listen guys, don't put this off any longer. Right now today, <laughs> get your pet policy in place.
0: That's it for this episode of Working Lunch. We'll talk to you again next week.